The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 2nd, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. New York State, my state, went ahead with signs that the federal government looked at and said, Ugh, too noisy. Too much info. Over there, it says, I love New York. Over there, it says, where to stay. Over there, it says, where to eat. New York's highway signs are too loud, too busy, too pushy. In other words, America thinks New York signs are too much like New Yorkers. Oh, maybe we should have California signs. Sleepy and faux laid back, but passive aggressive. Next up, gas, if you really want to kill the birds, bro. Or maybe like South Carolina signs, which seem so sweet on the surface, but underneath pretty dark. Next stop, lodging. Cozy, homey lodging. Or maybe for you, you continue on the road a little while. Texas signs, they do say don't mess with Texas. That is in keeping with their character. Now, Michigan, they have the signs that say, five miles, merge to Detroit. Exit. Next left. Right. Michiganders are like Snagglepuss, right? That stereotype? No? Not heard that? It is not a laughing matter, Mike. The ongoing feud between the state and the government could jeopardize a portion of the state's $1.7 billion in annual federal highway funding. They have been battling for years and years these stupid signs that say, I love New York. I guess New York's arguing, look, the love part isn't even spelled out. It's just a heart. And people do know how to read emojis. But yeah, I look at these signs and they are my state, but they got a logo. They got a web address and they tout, they can't just tout one attraction. They have to list every attraction in the area. Eat here, drink here, history here. They are a mess. They are a Niagara Falls wax museum when they really should be a serene sunset in a Hudson Valley orchard. They are, in fact, a disaster. And I just know the next time a tractor trailer jackknives on the Deegan, it's going to emerge that the driver was too busy trying to get to the bottom of a dense paragraph on lodging off the Grand Concourse. And that will be Andrew Cuomo's bridge gate. And all the traffic that ensues can delay motorists in the short term, but can derail political careers in the long term. Heed that, Cuomo. Exit. Stage left. Sorry, just went Michigan on you. On the show today, I spiel about, well, I'll just tease. This is called the tease. Indiana tax codes. Do I have to say more? Okay, I will in the spiel. But first, I have been thinking about political parties. And they used to be Southern Democrats and liberal Republicans and coalitions of different people throughout the country, but they got ideologically pure. Republicans became pretty much the party of conservatives, Democrats almost entirely the party of liberals. And I thought, well, that's just logical. That's good. It's not good. Because as the ideological purity happened, so too did paralysis occur, and the two were related. And then I figured out an analogy. It's like dog breeds. You think a purebred dog is the best, but no. Genetic diversity makes things better, makes dogs as a species stronger and more robust. And that is just one idea that I encountered in the book Messy. Its author is Tim Harford, and he's here now. Thank you. 
Maybe it's because people looked at my desk. Maybe it's because people saw my calendar. Maybe it's because people closely observed my style of dress. But many people have pressed this book into my hand. Messy, the power of disorder to transform our lives. I think these people thought this was trying to get me on the uh, straight and narrow. But in fact, messy is a full-throated defense of messiness or variations on messiness that I want to talk to its author, Tim Harford, about. Hello, Tim. Hello. So I think in this book, Messy, Messy is a great title and it's a great cover, but there are different variations. One is variety. One is going outside your comfort zone. One is uh, an embrace of heterodoxy. Yeah, it's it's a messy enough book. I yeah, have to say. <laughs> that's good. I mean, I'm talking it's a, about it's a built-in justification. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, letting go, improvising, uh, working with people you that that make you feel uncomfortable, putting yourself in situations that make you feel uncomfortable, multitasking, and of course, you know, plain old-fashioned mess, messy yeah. calendars, messy desks, physical uh, mess. All of those things. And so it is a messy celebration of the entire thing. But as I look at you, you are dressed perhaps like a member of Mumenchance. You have just a very neat black turtleneck on. I've met you a couple times, a nice haircut. You don't seem messy, are you? I'm a tidy person. You are tidy. I confess. Well, if you were to come to my house and, and say, look at my kitchen, you would say... This is a tidy person. If you if you went to the sitting room, you went to the bedroom. I'm not saying I would actually invite you to my bedroom, but if you did, if you <laughs> if you were so lucky, depends you, on how this interview goes. You I guess. would say exactly. <laughs> the, the day is young. You would say this is a tidy person. But if you saw my desk, or most days you would say this is pretty messy. It's not mm-hmm. chaos, but it's pretty messy. Piles of paper anywhere. Piles of paper everywhere, and. What I was trying to do in part was to understand, well, hang on, why is the kitchen tidy and the desk messy? Is there something I and I realized there's actually no such thing as just a fundamentally tidy person. Some situations call for more disorder than others. I mean, the difference between the kitchen, for example, we're, we're, we're told a place for everything, everything in its place. Well, that's fine in the kitchen. You know, put the glasses in the, in the glass cabinet and the corkscrew in the corkscrew drawer. No problem. There is a place for everything. OK, so where is the place for your email? It comes into your inbox, 50 a day, 100 a day. And it turns out if you try to to impose order on them too quickly and put them all in folders too quickly, you will lose them. There is, I've talked to one of the leading experts on this subject, a psychologist called Steve Whitaker. He says there is such a thing as premature filing. Yeah. You have information that you don't fully understand. If you try to label it, structure it, organize it too quickly, it's completely counterproductive. If you let it build up in your inbox or you let the paper build up on your desk, you're actually probably going to be more productive. Yeah. And and spending all that time to create all the files and all the places that it goes is you, you'd just be better off spending your time dealing with your uh, email as email rather yeah, than just, email as the taxonomy of email. Just just answer the email. You, yeah. can, you can deal with the fine gradations later. But this is a very common misperception. Nobody ever has to apologize for getting to inbox zero. No one ever has to apologize for having a tidy desk. We feel we have to apologize when, when things look messy. And one of the stories I tell in the book is of Benjamin Franklin, obviously one of the most remarkable lives in history, President of Pennsylvania, U.S. Ambassador to France, signature on the Declaration of Independence, invented the bifocal lenses, set up a newspaper, was a printer, blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, so much. Also, a self-improvement guy. He kept trying, in a very modern way, trying to improve himself, eliminate his flaws, embrace higher and higher virtues. And yet in his autobiography, at the age of 80, he looks back and he says, yeah, I was pretty good at, at 
embracing all of those virtues and eliminating all of my flaws, there was just one I could never get sorted. I was always disorganized. Messy desk, <laughs> messy diary. And just, the, I mean, it makes me laugh, the idea that Benjamin Franklin's going, gosh, if only I had more manila folders, <laughs> I, would, I would really have got something done. It's crazy. Of course it's yeah. crazy, but it's, it's addictive. Well, it's beyond, it's beyond crazy. It's almost kind of cute that he doesn't realize that the messiness directly led to the bursts of creativity. It, well, must, it wasn't a flaw. It, it wasn't a bug. It was a virtue. Yeah, I mean, I can't prove that, but no. I think I, I have pretty good reason to believe it certainly did him no harm. Uh, you don't want to argue from from anecdote there but there are lots and lots of very very messy people who are very successful and as i've been talking to people about this book the number of very successful productive people who've come up to me and said oh i feel so much better about my messy desk i just you know, we beat ourselves up about this mm-hmm. and yet when you actually look at you know, serious research on the on the subject people who study you know, the flows of documents flows of information there really is no reason to believe for for most people it depends on your job but there's no reason to believe for most people that actually tidying everything up all the time is in any way a sensible thing to do. It doesn't help you. I think there's a gender dynamic. I have read um, I have read studies that show that clutter bothers women or they have a lower threshold point for being bothered by clutter than men. And uh, I live this in my own life where I am literally blind to the things that my girlfriend is driven crazy by. Well, I'm going to take your word for it. I have not seen those studies and I'm always slightly suspicious of them because we're so we're always so keen to believe gender studies that, mm-hmm. that say, oh, men and women are different. Yeah. But maybe you're right. What's certainly true is that different people have different tolerances for mess. And so if you live with somebody or if you work with somebody, whatever the gender, you, know, you might be a tidy person and they might be a messy person or vice versa. And we have to figure out ways to live with each other. Some of the research I discuss in the book is about this, this barbaric policy of clear desks where the management of a company Many companies are far too sensible to do this, but it's it's not uncommon for a company to say everyone has to clear their desk. Yeah, Bloomberg has this rule where you can have one picture of a family member and that's it and no other pieces of flair on your desk. Yeah. Well, I describe uh, BHP Billiton in Australia has this rule where you can either have a picture of the family or a framed certificate of some kind of award or something that you've won, but not both. No. It's like, so if you want to display your award, yeah. the punishment is you have to remove that. I mean, it doesn't I guess maybe sense. you could show, you could have a framed certificate of your child's perfect attendance, a little bit of two birds with it's, one stone. It's, yeah. it's very, very strange that we, that we think that this in any way is going to help. And the justifications are often circular. We say, well, this is the way that professional people behave or uh, our office will look tidier if it looks tidier. It's just crazy stuff. But the the research I was talking about, two British psychologists set up different office environments and got people to work in them and saw how productive they were and, and asked them, you know, how are you feeling? Are you, you know, do you, are you enjoying the, the tasks that we're giving you? Do you like the office space? All of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. What they found was people tended to like decorated spaces rather than very, very minimalist spaces. But that wasn't a huge difference. What made a massive difference is whether people felt they had control. So the most productive spaces were the ones where they said to people, here's a pot plant, here are some paintings, you, get, you can have the pictures on the wall, you can put the pot plant where you like, or we'll take it away. You, you get to decide. People were very productive and very happy. And when they did that, and then afterwards said, oh, I'm sorry, we have to change this, and then came in and moved everybody's stuff around, having given them control, then they took the control away from them. People felt physically sick and they hated everything. They hated the task. They hated the office. They hated the company. They really hated the researchers. They wanted to punch the researchers. So when we take 
autonomy away from from people on the basis of what is an incredibly superficial thing. I want your desk to look clear. I mean, I don't know why we do this. Yeah. And this, by the way, gets to my conflict with my girlfriend and everyone else's conflict with their spouse or the person they live with, which is, it's not necessarily that I'm inherently or intrinsically messy. It's just that my order isn't their order. So my order makes them feel out of control. And so even the person who says, I have my, I have my own filing system and it's crazy. It's true. They do. But if you actually made that filing system look cleaner or tidier to the outside, but that person didn't have control, it would drive them crazy and it would be worse for them. No, you're absolutely right. And often a messy system offers us all kinds of clues if we've been using it. If this pile of paper on our desks uh, is something we've been using, we recognize in very subtle ways that the the dog is here and there's a coffee stain there and there's a a little bit of post-it note sticking out. And you could never express it in words, but you really do know where the stuff is. And by the way, that pile is self-organizing. Yeah, The stuff you're not touching is sinking to the bottom. The stuff you keep using keeps appearing on the top, which any computer scientist will tell you is actually the optimal way to organize a computer's memory cache. So it's, it's not a random distribution of paper at all. But you look at this, and to you, it makes perfect sense. And to anybody else, it is incomprehensible. And incredibly untidy. So we you know we just need to figure out some way of accommodating each other. Okay, so I have a couple of I don't know if they're pushbacks, but some of these are answered in the book or actually have been answered in our conversation. Uh, you say you can't argue by anecdote. So true, yet so many of these examples are right there for the plucking. And you talk about brilliantly creative people who maybe have a couple of projects at once or brilliantly creative people like Brian Eno, who inject uh, messiness to the creative process. And it helps. Is there an argument that messiness is great perhaps to foster greatness? It's a great way to get the absolute pinnacle of achievement. But if what we're going for is just some sort of base level competence, messiness is not the way to go. I think there are tidy situations that deserve to stay tidy Mm -hmm. and where standardization helps us, habits help us, routine helps us, quantification helps us. And that can be true whether you're operating at a very high level. Maybe you're a brain surgeon using a checklist. Don't be, me- don't be a messy brain surgeon, even yeah. if you're brilliant. Or it could be at a very basic level. But then so, again, the neuroscientist the, who the, had, problem. the neuroscientist might have the insight due, due to a messy habit of mind. You know, he might be the kind of person who's working on three projects at once, and that might prompt him to something. I mean, in general, I would say I want a messy music producer more than a messy accountant, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe within that field of accounting, like there is an insight that that guy has that came about due to some messy habit. No, I think you want a tidy accountant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, because, and there's a good reason, because the, the accountant is dealing with high highly structured information. And so there is already an order to the information. It makes perfect sense. And if you're, if you're messy, then you're, you mess with that order. It's not going to help you. But I can give you a, a very straightforward everyday example of disruption making very ordinary people more effective. The London Underground strike of a couple of years ago. So almost everybody in London gets to work on either the London Underground or the buses or the overground trains. The very few people own cars. It's a dense city. A couple of years ago, the tube stations, the underground stations, two-thirds of them were shut down by industrial action. And so people had to find some other way of getting to work. And we can track all of this because everyone's got these smart cards that they use for their journeys on, on the buses, on the trains, on the underground trains, everything. What researchers found was, obviously, lots and lots of people changed their route to work because, well, you know, two-thirds of the stations are closed, so you've got to find a new route to work. But then thousands and thousands of people 
never changed back. And so this is an example of you have a routine and it turns out your commute to work is suboptimal and it's been suboptimal every day of your life. You, you, would, you would have thought you'd have worked it out by now, right? But you've, you've actually been doing it wrong your whole life. Along comes 48 hours of a strike. You have to find a different way. And suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I never realized I could do it this way. It's better. It's cheaper. It's faster, whatever. So that's just a simple example of how a disruption, an obstacle seems to mess us up enables us to find a better way of doing something. So I have always thought, well, a lot of this is self-justified, but as I live and think about things, the self-justification sometimes uh, fades away, but sometimes becomes more focused. And here's what I've come to conclude. The messiness is good, but what you really want is either call it messiness, a little bit of chaos, improvisation within structure. And if you have that structure, I could think of so many examples, the jazz musician who can improvise, but there's a superstructure that they're improvising. And also just the fact that they became the virtuoso jazz musician, you weren't screwing around when you were taking your lessons or the film noir, that there were these, this haze code and there were these rules, but within that structure, you could have great creativity or the best comedy. You know, you, you stick to certain rules or you stick to a format or, you know, when I host the uh, comedy show, wait, wait, don't tell me that superstructure allows the comedy to flourish within it. And that is all improvisational. The question is, you know, at what point do you say this is the structure and the structure can't be messy? Or, you know, can you take the lesson of messiness, keep extending it out until you don't even have a structure anymore? That doesn't seem to help. No, I don't think it will help. I'm not saying in this book that total chaos is <laughs> the answer to everything. Um, for yeah. instance, the pages are in yeah. order. The pages are <laughs> yeah. absolutely The font order. is consistent. Yeah, yeah I, there is one exception to that. There's a slightly different font on one page. For, Brian Eno page? You know, uh, there's, there's, there's a different font because there's some interesting research on what reading in different fonts <laughs> right, does right, to you. It right, actually right. focuses your attention when you have to... Exactly, yes. <laughs> I found it. I can page see a, a little bit of, of perky German Hattenschweiler font creeping into the neatness of the page. <laughs> yes. Uh, but and right. a zesty Comic Sans <laughs> italicized. Yes, it, it is a very zesty font. But no, you're absolutely right. You need a structure. We are probably in most situations not being quite as loose as we can be, not being quite as messy as we can be. We're probably sticking too closely to the script. If we let go a little bit, we probably get better results. So that I'm trying to, to just not swing the pendulum to an extreme, but just push it a little bit away from where it generally tends to be. Tim Harford is a columnist for the Financial Times. He's the author of The Undercover Economist, and his new book is Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. And for Slate Plus subscribers, a version of this interview in Comic Sans Italicized will be available in your feed. But now Tim and I have to record that. So Tim Harford, how are you? I don't know what the hell. I just tried something. That's good. No, I just you tried. Got to do it. You just embrace Brian, it. Just embrace it. Brian Eno is, is with us as we speak. Just a zephyr of cerebral chaos blowing backwards and forwards across our frontal lobes. Embrace it. Embrace it. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. And now the spiel. I've been very critical of the carrier deal, what we could figure out about the quote-unquote deal Trump got great headlines. Some jobs were saved in this Indiana air conditioning plant. But I want to be fair. One of the criticisms is that this was a taxpayer bailout. Here's Steve Ratner, who's a Wall Street guy. He's on Morning Joe a lot. used to write for the New York Times. And he, in fact, oversaw the uh, auto bailout part 
of uh, the stimulus. And he wrote, carrier deal in a nutshell, job saved from going to Mexico, 800, job still going to Mexico, 1300, cost to Indiana taxpayers, 7 million. Igor Volsky, who covers economic issues for the Center for American Progress, left-wing think tank, writes, in 2016, Carrier threatens to move jobs, gets $7 million, still moves jobs. But I want to talk about the $7 million that you and I, the taxpayers, were paying to Carrier. I just don't think it's true. I don't think it's a fair comparison. So what we heard is that Indiana gave $7 million in tax breaks to the company, but that's over 10 years. So that's $700,000 a year on average. Now, it's hard to know exactly how much money the people who are working at the plant make, but the Indianapolis Star newspaper says it was $31 an hour. New York Times said somewhere between 20 and 25. Anyway, this would make a carrier employee working a 40-hour week. I know there's overtime, but let's do the calculation with the 40-hour week. He earns, she earns $62,000 a year. Now, Indiana's a really easy state tax to figure out. It's a flat tax, 3.3% for everyone. So that person pays $2,000 in state taxes. Now, if that person loses his or her job and has to take another available job in the area, according to prevailing wages, they'd make about $40,000. And they would pay in state tax $1,250. So that difference... $750 a worker times the thousand workers that most news outlets are talking about. It means that the 700000 that the state paid is being recouped by those very workers. I do not understand why the people behind this deal do not say, no, the taxpayers aren't paying anything. The tax receipts from the beneficiaries of this deal are supplying all the money that we're paying out to keep the people working in Indiana. And this doesn't even take into account the fact that I'm sure some of these people after being fired would leave the state and the state would get no tax revenue. Or what would probably happen, a lot of these people wouldn't get jobs. They'd go on the dole. They'd require state services. So just in terms of the taxpayer bailout, it's unfair. I say that. I say that because I think it's true. But I also want to talk about another story I saw in the Indianapolis Star. It turns out Trump owns stock in United Technology, Carrier's parent company who he was negotiating with. He declared $2,500 to $5,000 in dividends. Now, if you do the math, I looked it up. They paid 64 cents a quarter. It's about two fifty dollars for the year. We can figure out that Trump owns about 1,000 or 2,000 shares of UTC stock. UTC stock trading up about 4% since Trump's election. This means that Trump made a few thousand dollars on the deal. He says he doesn't own any of this stock now. We don't know if we can believe him. He didn't do a full disclosure on that. And I guess you could say it's no big deal for someone of Trump's wealth, but it's an enormous deal. He has financial interest in the company that he's negotiating with. Their success is his success. Today, it's a few thousand dollars. In the future, it might be hundreds of thousands or more. We don't know. He won't disclose And what documents are out there? No one even looked it up until a day ago. I didn't see it anywhere that he owns stock in the parent company, the CEO of which he sat down with. Didn't see it anywhere but the Indy Star. And so this is why it's an enormous deal. Are we up for this? I listened to the political gab fest today, and I was vacillating back and forth depending on what the last speaker said. Trump's like that a little bit. But first I... Agreed with Jacob Weisberg, who said, listen, there is a perfect version of disclosure for Trump's assets. We know we're not going to get that. Let's get the best we could hope for. Then Adam Davids has said, no, there is no amount of conflict of interest that is tolerable. Ruth Marcus talked about intolerable. Sure, it's intolerable, but there's less intolerable. It's tough because intolerable is an absolute. 
I was thinking of torture. There's the torture of having to listen to any Steve Miller song, not on the Greatest Hits album. And then there's the torture of having your actual fingernails ripped from your fingers. And here's my problem with conflict of interest. A few thoughts. One, we always blather on about appearances of conflict of interest. That's nothing. That's subjective, and that's what you say when you can't prove a conflict of interest. We went on so much about appearances that I think it ruined what was real conflict of interest for us. It made a real conflict of interest seem debatable because the appearance of a conflict of interest is inherently debatable. When you're the president and you set a policy that will make you money or lose you money, that is the clearest example of a conflict of interest. You don't have to worry about appearance. That's one. Two, I do not like the phrase. It's too multisyllabic. There is an of in there. Of phrases do not have high valiance with Joe's six-pack. Phrases like public displays of affection or people of color or person of means. And an interest, conflict of interest. What's an interest mean? An interest can be big, an interest can be small. Even a conflict can be big or small. Now, stealing, that would be something we all understood, but it's not stealing. It's not quite stealing. Maybe we should call this, instead of he has a conflict of interest, we should say it is clear that Trump will be using our presidency to make his money, our office, his money. But I'm not even going to suggest a different phrase. That's not why I'm here. I'm going to suggest a different framework. We need to ask, as we used to do when we thought it mattered, is this thing true when we had fact-checking websites? Instead of fact-checking, we should have wealth-checking. How'd the president get richer today? Every act he undertakes, we should have this question asked. We give one to four bags of cash, depending on the decision, or maybe he'll go full Berlusconi. And you don't have to prove it. Like, if he lets Erdogan of Turkey off the hook, we know he has Turkish interests, so we can say, yes, he got richer today, Erdogan is happier. It won't be on the media to have to demonstrably show this because he's being opaque and he won't even let us see what his assets are. So all policy, everything that he does, depending on the country, depending on the project that he undertakes, goes through the lens of, did the president get richer because of it? Every day that could be the question, did the president get richer today? The day that his tax cut passes, that will be the biggest mover. And we'll keep a list of them. Joe Sixpack might not care. Joe Pack of Six might care, but it's there if you want it. And even if it doesn't drive public condemnation, it'll at least be, in the moment, an interesting article to read, and perhaps in the future, an interesting article of impeachment. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Barube drove off the road trying to discern if Onondaga has the best funnel cakes in the county. Just producer Mary Wilson ran headlong into a semi, but both went out with a smile, aware that the Seneca Lakes region offers great boating. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, never saw the oncoming Subaru. The greater tragedy was that the Subaru never saw the offer of Kanajahari jellies and jams being in season. Interesting wrinkle, the driver of that Subaru, that was chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, but he did have a car full of carp because the great Scanandaga Lake carp were biting, as the signs clearly said. The gist, I realize I killed off my whole staff in these credits, but I also did plug state tourism so they didn't die in vain. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.